7 p.m., La Rasa Chronicles. Stay tuned for Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. drop the shadows out of sight. <laughs> Don't want to look at those. Today is Tuesday, March 31st, 2009. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. And today is the last day of Woman's History Month. Sadly, the, the pundits, um, the pundits are telling us that this war uh, that's going down uh, is called Bush's War. That's what is it? That's not the sort of that's not the sort of thing I wanted to think about on the last day of Women's History Month. Uh, actually, yes, uh, it's not Bush's War anymore, but Barack Hussein Obama does seem to be, uh, what is it, he is a man of goodwill. We have to wait and see. Uh, what's driving me nuts was I listened to some pundits last night and they were calling this new, um, this new conflict AFPAC. That's for, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, Pakistan being the elephant in, in the room, in the gloom. <laughs> it's a hell of a big country. Pakistan, it's nothing like Afghanistan, but I kept thinking AFPAC, AFPAC, and then I looked up at my cable TV set, and I was watching, I saw what was on, it was John Hurt in 1984, the movie made from Orwell's book, 1984, you know, the one with uh, Richard Burton as the interrogator, the bad guy, uh, John Hurt plays Winston, the guy who's terrified of rats. Yes, rats. I I was knocked out by that movie when it was first released. I think it's the best film I've ever seen of a, what is that, future dystopia. It was quite terrifying, but I thought, AFPAC, that sounds like the kind of um, uh, anagrams and phrases that Orwell used, what did he call it, ing sock and various things, you know, there's always um, Eurasia and all these sort of, um, what is that, made up words. Uh, I was just thinking, uh, yes, if, um, if it's as, what is it, if it's as bad as it looks, uh, most of us, I think, had better just... I'm going to go back to bed and pull the electric blanket up over my head and turn it up to to nine. Uh, 
I dug out some tapes late last night. Uh, they were made back in the first Gulf War. You remember that Gulf War back in uh, 91, 92. <laughs> I remember, yeah, was when CNN became addictive. It was the big movie, right? That was the, uh, that was George Herbert Bush's war. Uh, George Herbert Bush declared, I quote, we have kicked the Vietnam syndrome. Apparently, it's all about manhood. Uh, the national sperm count went through the roof at the time. Remember the bars, everybody's going crazy. Uh, I read about all that in the newspapers. We still had newspapers then. Uh, we have kicked the Vietnam syndrome. My God, never mind. Never mind that the dead are still dead and millions of them were Vietnamese civilians. Uh, that was back, oh, let's see, um, Sylvester Stallone had softened things up. Remember his Rambo films had helped Ronnie Reagan bring back the infantile male gung-ho image, that vroom, vroom stuff. Um, they were, what is that, uh, officially anti-war pictures, but, uh, you know, that doesn't, uh, doesn't come out that way. They were morbidly sentimental, sentimentality being the flip side of violence. Uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone kept crying and saying that he had, he had served his country, he had loved his mother, and look what she did to him. Look what the motherland had done to him. Anyway, at the time, uh, POWs, prisoners of war, were being canonized uh, because, of course, their fate was unknown. Their uh, their remains or or the men themselves were in uh, Vietnam, and we uh, we couldn't figure out. Well, there was no resolution. We couldn't go and find the bones. There was no closure, as they say. That's the most irritating word in recent jargon. Uh, of course, today, uh, those, uh, those soldiers, war veterans, the ones still living, uh, are everywhere, um, some of them damaged beyond repair, same story, over and over again, year after year, war after war, it's just too tiresome, I don't want to, uh, go on wringing my hands, uh, but always, always the need for a wargasm. I noticed in the movie 1984, John Hurt is uh, talking to Richard Burton, and Richard Burton tries to explain that the war is, is not about winning. The, the war is necessary to maintain social order. There's always a war. It's a permanent condition. Uh, I suppose that President Obama... We'll discover that the military-industrial complex is us. There's no place like Rome. I mean, what's he going to do? Fire them? Um, looking at my notes on that first Gulf War, I remember I'd written a piece called The Eve of Destruction. All I'd have to do is change the dates, and uh, I could air it again without any changes. Um, oh, there's some new faces same script, yes, but fresh, fresh blood. Yes, new flesh and blood. 
Speaking of suicides, species suicides, uh, I was knocked out by the death of the son of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes this week. Uh, kind of frightened me. I, I thought, well, it's awful when the past comes rushing back. The young man, well, Nicholas was 47. He killed himself on my son's birthday. I, I always think of Sylvia Plath, uh, as my contemporary. Uh, we were born the same year and her two children were born the same years as my two. You know, our dates match. I always used to say we went to different schools together. <laughs> she on the East Coast and me on the West. Uh, I believe her first child, Frida, is still with us. I dug out uh, her poems last night and frankly, um, well, I'll study them a little more. They don't seem to me to tell us very much, uh, but I thought maybe, maybe if Nicholas had been able to write, had been able to um, express his feelings, he would still be with us. Uh, Ted Hughes was the poet laureate of England until his death. Um, very important guy. He published some personal poems uh, about the time he knew he was dying. I can't say they revealed much. Um, all the biographies are so contradictory. Most of them seem to buy into the mythos that Sylvia herself created. Uh, oh, yes, Daddy, I'm through. I could wish that her son, Nicholas, had lived to get old and had written his story. Somebody once said only the dead tell the truth, and then not for some years. Uh, we may find out some things if, if those close to them are willing to write about their, their story. Ted Hughes was a practicing witch, literally, uh, the old religion in England, uh, pagan. His mother was steeped in the craft. When his second wife died, Ted Hughes' second wife, um, she took their infant child with her, and just at that time, Ted's mother died quite suddenly, and I've always wondered what that was all about, uh, what she was feeling, whether it was grief for her grandchild or, or something else. Uh, it always seems to me more comforting than strange to know that human life is still... This great mystery uh, that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in philosophy. Maybe, maybe there are supernatural forces, uh, primal forces. Uh, perhaps they are nothing but natural, natural forces. Elemental, but still mysterious, inexplicable the poets and prophets pay a terrible price just just for a glimpse into the abyss. Their journey into the dark, you know, to hell and back. They go at the risk of their lives. Uh, they go and bring back knowledge for our sake, but they do risk their lives or their sanity, and not all of them make it. Um, one who did come through with flying colors was Samuel Beckett. <laughs> I don't know why this this is a Beckett week for me. 
The late, great nihilist Samuel Beckett is profiled in the current New Yorker. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Samuel Beckett because he uh, he hasn't gotten much press in the last few years. Uh, the 30th March 2009 issue of the New Yorker has a profile by Anthony Lane. The article is called Waiting, which of course refers to Waiting for Godot, his masterpiece, his play, but all of his plays are about waiting. The article is uh, only an introduction, but it's a start for those who who find Beckett a bit intimidating. Um, a, a lot of people say he gives them a terrible headache. For me, he is a triumph of absurdity. Uh, I don't know whether he's a... Uh, a Buddhist or a madman, uh, what was it he used to say he was mad? He said, oh, not that I was really mad, but I, I passed for mad. Uh, he is uh, always, uh, what is that, at the first line of defense, um, existential agony is, <laughs> is his subject. I was once told that I mustn't, uh, that it wasn't right for me to read his works, at least aloud on the air, because... They were a man suffering in a man's world, and my answer was that they were about death, which I think, uh, I think women, uh, well, perhaps no, perhaps no, perhaps women uh, are not um, the experts on death that uh, men are. Anyway, the older Beckett grew, the funnier was his writing and his, uh, what is it, his personality. He got so cheerful in his old age. It seems to me that poets, prophets, writers, they all seem to, um, see, they go one way. I think of Mark Twain as someone who started out with such a light heart and wound up in such such deep pessimism. Uh, Beckett, on the other hand, started out in agony, and by the time he died, he was taking so many whacks. <laughs> In reality, he was quite an absurdist. Nothing cheers me up more than his uh, proclamations of utter disaster. Nothing is more hilarious than the truth. As far as I can tell, history is the the work of a lifetime. Uh, Once again, the article on Samuel Beckett is in the 30th March New Yorker. Uh... And it doesn't, it doesn't crack the surface, but I wanted to read you just a few, a few, uh, paragraphs of this, and then I wanted to tell you, I mustn't forget to tell you that Jermaine Greer is coming to town tonight. Um, that's, uh, 7.30 tonight at the Hillside Club, $10 at the door. That's at 2286 Cedar Street, Berkeley. That's tonight, Tuesday, March 31st. Jermaine Greer has a book um, about Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway. You remember the one Shakespeare left her his second best bed. Anyway, this is obviously a revisionist spin on Shakespeare's wife and, of course, of the lives and position of women in the Elizabethan age. That's Jermaine Greer tonight, 730 Hillside Club, $10 at the door, 2286 Cedar Cedar Street, uh, that's 
you can, if you can want to go online, it's www.berkeleyarts.org. All small letters, no spaces. www.berkeleyarts.org. Okay. Beckett. Yes, Beckett. I used to think of Beckett as my, my mother. My, yes, Gertrude Stein was my father and Beckett was my mother. But Beckett's story is all about his mother. She paid for his psychotherapy. Uh, <laughs> her name was May. Used to say I called her Mag. Yes, May. Anyway, uh, Beckett suffered uh, from anxiety attacks, uh, which uh, is not unusual. The poor man was nearly murdered once. Uh, there's a story. Let me tell you about this. Yes, it was just one of those... Things I think this is why he found life so completely arbitrary and absurd. Uh, in the year 1938, he published his first novel, Murphy, and that same year, a French pimp by the misleading name of Prudent stabbed Beckett in the street, just missing his heart. Uh, when his victim, when Samuel Beckett inquired about a motive, Prudent said, I don't know why, sir. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes. Anyway, um, Beckett had moments of, uh, what you call it, uh, optimism. He wanted to, to do things like uh, become a filmmaker or a pilot. Of course, none of these things ever came to anything. As he says, uh, nothing ever came of anything. But here he is writing about flying. He says, I hope I'm not too old to take it up seriously nor too stupid about machines. To qualify as a commercial pilot, I do not feel like spending the rest of my life writing books that no one will read. It is not as though I wanted to write them. <laughs> now, this article by Anthony Lane is basically a promo for a new uh, collection of Beckett's letters. He specified that he didn't want any of his letters published anywhere. Uh, and then, of course... <laughs> When he got older, he changed his mind and he thought it might be fun. It says here, for a man of few words, Beckett wrote an awful lot of letters, right? Some 15,000 have been found. Right. Uh, the question, of course, is to what do they pertain? Well, I agree with Anthony Lane. It's a shame that the letters... They begin in 1929, so there's nothing, uh, nothing about his childhood, and uh, not a single letter, not a single letter uh, from his mother is extant. Apparently, he burned them all. There is not a single letter addressed to her either. Right, okay. Lane writes, what let the flame and never ceased to fuel it was Beckett's relationship with his mother, May. All we glimpse here is the occasional flare. 
But um, whether the absence of the letters is by editorial decree or because the pages were lost or destroyed, there's no way of telling. One thing seems certain. Without his mother's influence, some of Beckett's most consuming contributions to literature, and they make a long list, you know, plays like Happy Days, a lot of the short plays, um, would not exist. You do not have to construe all storytelling as memoir to be startled by the immediacy of, and he mentions another masterpiece, Oh, 1957, from an abandoned work, yes. <laughs> he gives you the first sentence. Up right and early that day, I was young then, feeling awful and out, mother hanging out of the window in her nightdress, weeping and waving. Anyway, he goes on about the uh, psychotherapy that Mrs. Beckett paid for, the anxiety attacks, uh... And the indecently loveless life that uh, <laughs> Beckett insists he lived, although he certainly had more than enough attention. Uh, there's no mention here of, um, well, he was secretary to James Joyce, and Joyce's daughter fell in love with him. That was a tragedy. Beckett was not forthcoming. Uh, according to Beckett, this life is terrible, and I don't understand how it, can be endured. That's what he wrote in 1930. Uh, Lane says, what we have here is not historically uncommon. It's the early progress of an intensely clever, emotionally febrile figure whose worries are further chafed by his dismay at seeing how directionless that progress feels. When Beckett turns to Schopenhauer... That's Arthur Schopenhauer, the German philosopher. In 1930, it is for the philosopher's intellectual justification of unhappiness. Ah, right. He says, Beckett thought that um, Schopenhauer's justification of unhappiness was the greatest that has ever been attempted. Hmm. Anyway, uh... Lane goes on to list a number of the biographies that were written about Beckett. I've read at them. I invariably get a little fed up because, as I say, they are not really what you call, what you call, <laughs> liter literary uh, scandals. They're pretty grim. Uh, I think what uh, fascinates me over and over again is that Beckett was, of course, First and foremost, a poet. Nobody seems to get that. They simply seem to want to know why his therapy didn't work or something. Uh, once he said, well, you see, it's just about these sounds uh, and the uh, psychiatric stuff. That's basically all about, uh, well, it's simple, simple Freudian stuff. Uh, he says that uh, his mother's whole idea was to get him committed, uh, that is... Uh, committed to a mental institution. Uh, yes, Beckett writes, I am what her savage loving has made me, and it is good, it is good that one of us should accept that finally. <laughs> anyway, Beckett's solitude 
is the most cheerful company I've known. Uh, let me just take the little bit of time I have left to read you a couple of passages. Uh, I think this one is from Malone, yes. Beckett writes, My mother never refused to see me. That is, she never refused to receive me. For it was many a long days since she'd seen anything at all. I shall try and speak calmly. We were so old, she and I. She had had me so young that we were like a couple of old cronies, sexless, unrelated, with the same memories, the same rancors, the same expectations. She never called me son. Fortunately, I couldn't have borne it. But Dan? I don't know why. My name is not Dan. Dan was my father's name, perhaps. Perhaps she took me for my father. I took her for my mother, and she took me for my father. Ah, yes. Dan, do you remember the day I saved the swallow? Dan, do you remember the day you buried the ring? I remembered, I remembered. I mean, I knew more or less what she was talking about. And if I wasn't always involved personally in the scene, she evoked. Uh, well, it was just as if I had been. I called her Mag. Well, I'd call her something. I called her Mag because for me, without my knowing why, the letter G abolished the syllable Ma, and as it were, spat on it better than any other letter could have done. At the same time, I acknowledged a deep and doubtless unacknowledged need. The need to have a ma, that is, a mother, and to proclaim it audibly. For before you say mag, mag, you say ma, inevitably, and da, in my part of the world, means father, or what the hell besides. For me... The question did not arise at the period I'm warming into now. I mean the question whether as to call her Mag, Ma, or the Countess Cock. Ah, she having for countless years been as deaf as a post. Oh, she knew it was me by my smell. <laughs> her shrunken, hairy old face lit up. She was happy to smell me. She jabbered away with her rattling dentures and most of the time didn't realize what she was saying. Anyone but myself would have been lost in this clattering gabble, which can only have stopped during her brief instances of unconsciousness. In any case, I didn't come to listen to her. I got into communication with her by knocking on her skull. One knock meant yes, two no, three I don't know, four money, five goodbye. It was uh, hard to ram this code into her ruined and frantic understanding, <laughs> but I did it in the end. I mean that she should confuse, yes, no, I don't know, and goodbye was all the same to me. I confused them myself, but that she should associate the fornox with anything but money was something to be avoided at all costs. During the period of training, therefore, at the same time as I administered the fornox on the skull, 
I stuck a banknote under her nose or in her mouth. Oh, in the innocence of my heart. For she seemed to have lost, if not absolutely, all notion of mensuration, at least the faculty of counting beyond two. And it was too far for her. And that, I think, is my salute to <laughs> International Women's History Month, Samuel Beckett, writing about his mother. This has been Jennifer Stone. Maybe we'll do some more Beckett next week. He's my springtime poet. He cheers me up. Till next week at the same time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow out of On April 15, 1949, Pacifica Radio KPFA in Berkeley, California, went on the air for the first time, introducing listener-sponsored community radio to America. James Baldwin was a prominent and prolific novelist, essayist, and playwright. The psychology, the sense of reality, which allows any policeman to treat almost any citizen, but particularly any citizen suspected of being odd, strange, hard to handle, as his inferior. James Baldwin, recorded at the San Francisco Masonic Temple on December 14, 1964, broadcast on Pacifica Radio, now 60 years strong. For more information, visit your Pacifica Station website or call the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Welcome to the Million Color Revolution.